Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, thanks for being here. It's the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, and we're definitely glad that you have joined us. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis, all related to Bernie Sanders and his dominating win, we're pretty sure, in the Nevada caucuses. We're also sponsored today by Figs. Listeners to the Three Martini Lunch can get 15% off on Figs for a limited time by going to wherefigs.com and enter the code MARTINI15. At checkout, Jim, as uh, you and I just discussed, and our listeners should know, just as we started recording here, we've seen the news that just broke that there are some convictions and some acquittals for Harvey Weinstein in his uh, rape and sexual assault trial in New York City. It would be uh, inappropriate for us to dive into this uh, a lot when we don't know exactly a lot of the details at this point. So rest assured, there will probably be quite a bit on this on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. But uh, by the time some folks hear this, uh, a lot of those details might be known, and you might be wondering why we're not talking about it, and that's why. So let's talk Bernie, and let's get into the good, bad, and crazy here. Uh, Bernie Sanders, the big winner in the Nevada caucuses. He was the favorite, but I'm not sure anybody expected the size of the victory uh, that he got. Depending on which count you look at, everybody seems to be going with this state delegate count, just like they did in Iowa. It's not based on the popular vote, once again. But in the end, it's about 46, closing in on 47% for Bernie. Joe Biden in second with a little more than 20%. Buttigieg down there with 13. We don't have final numbers yet. We'll get to that in the uh, in the third martini. But uh, we knew with just a tiny fraction of the vote counted here, Jim, that Bernie was going to be the winner and probably a pretty big winner. That's not the good news. Uh, the good news is, is just watching the establishment Democrats pull their hair out here. Uh, Politico has a pretty good story on this. They interviewed a couple of guys. One is Matt Bennett of the center-left group Third Way. He says, in 30 years of politics, I've never seen this level of doom, meaning from his fellow Democrats. I've never had a day with so many people texting, emailing, calling me with so much doom and gloom. He uh, said, moderates firmly believe that a Sanders primary win would seal Donald Trump's re-election. Quote, it's this incredible sense that we're hurtling to the abyss. Good thing he's not overplaying this. I also think we could lose the House, and if we do, there would be absolutely no way to stop Trump. Today is the most depressed I've ever been in politics. Simon Rosenberg, head of the New Democrat Network, which has to be a pretty lonely place these days. For the establishment, he says, I think it's Joe or Bust. He says Biden is the only one who has a path to defeat Bernie, and it involves him winning South Carolina and then doing well enough in the early March states to make the race competitive. Uh, he says, I don't think Bloomberg can recover quickly quickly enough from the hits he's taken in recent days to remain competitive or win the nomination. So, Jim, it's it's like everyone in the Democratic Party just woke up to the threat that Bernie Sanders uh, presents here. And I think the most ironic part of this is all the other candidates who actually spoke after the, the outcome was pretty well known on Saturday were basically saying, we have got to unite to stop this. And every one of them came to the conclusion that I'm the one that has to stay in this race to stop him. And so nobody's getting out. <laughs> yeah, uh, what we're seeing here, Greg, is a really fascinating phenomenon. In many ways, as people point out, this is very similar to what happened in 2016. The tragedy of the commons, if you will. Uh, my colleague, Charlie Cook, really enjoyed knocking around Chris Hayes of MSNBC because four years ago, Chris Hayes was insisting, look, the reason Republicans are in this mess is because they are all inherently selfish, uh, because they don't believe in collective action, because they can't understand the concept of the greater good for all. 
they're all going to stay in this until the very end. They can't all unite behind one non-Trump alternative, and that's what's going to cause them uh, to Trump to be the nominee. Well, here we are four years later, the Democrats are in the exact same position. And all these Democrats who believe in collective action, all these Democrats who believe in the greater good and you know this very Vulcan notion of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Well, all of a sudden it doesn't mean much to Amy Klobuchar. It doesn't mean much to uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg and Mike Bloomberg and Joe Biden and all that. Um, that that's, you know, that, that really in the end, like, no, no, I should be the nominee. I really believe this. And I know I haven't done that well in these first three, but just wait till the next one. Um, and worth noting here. So first of all, again, like if the, the really frustrating thing is like, look, you look at the percentage that Sanders is getting in each one of these. He's getting a smaller percentage than in his one-on-one race against Hillary Clinton. Obviously, you know, when you only have two choices, your your you know, vote's going to split a little more even. The turnout has not been gobs and gobs ahead. I know it was higher in, in, than it was four years ago. Um, because of two of the three contests have been caucuses, and in 2016, nobody bothered to write down what the initial vote count was in the Iowa caucus. Why would anyone need to know that, Greg? <laughs> Um, we can't really make that direct comparison of how many votes Bernie got four years ago then. We can do that in New Hampshire, and that number is not good for Bernie Sanders. In fact, let me go down here and check. So in 2016, 152,000 people voted for Bernie Sanders in the New Hampshire Democratic primary. This time, 76,000. Remember, the whole argument of the Bernie Sanders campaign is that he's going to bring out people who were never active in politics before, people who usually don't vote, people who don't care. He's going to galvanize the, the proletariat hasn't happened. But the other thing, I'm just going to preview a uh, corner post that is in the works. It'll be up on later today. The establishment is in a panic. But what's really fascinating is the establishment, they're venting. They, they sound very scared, but they're not willing to act upon that. And just any one of a couple scenarios that I think could actually change this. Give me one of the non-Bernie Sanders uh, uh, candidates, Greg. Let's go with Klobuchar. Okay. Imagine if tomorrow, or even later today, Barack and Michelle Obama, Bill and Hillary Clinton, and Al Gore all come together and say, Amy Klobuchar is the best chance Democrats have to win in 2020. Be a game changer, right? I mean, they go, that would put enormous pressure on everybody else to get out and everybody would unite behind Klobuchar. And then maybe there'd be a one-on-one race. But ah, okay, they're former presidents. They don't like to get involved. Okay, fine. Let's say Chuck Schumer and the Senate Democratic leaders get together. I looked it up, Greg. 10 of the 47 Democratic senators have endorsed. And that's counting Robert Menendez endorsing Cory Booker and John Tester endorsing Steve Bullock. 39 Democratic senators have not endorsed anybody. Imagine if all, you know, even to say a dozen of them come out and say, we know Sanders well, we respect him, but we believe that Amy Klobuchar is our best bet against Donald Trump. Okay? That'd be a big hit. That'd be a big headline. That would make people sit up and take notice. You don't want to do that? Let's say in the House, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Adam Schiff, Gerald Nadler, the whole impeachment crew. If they came out and said, we got to elect uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar, that would get people to sit up and take notice. There are 16 House and Senate freshman women uh, who just got elected in 2018. If they said Amy Klobuchar gives us the best chance to keep or expand the House majority, that would get people to sit up and take notice. Whole bunch of governors. I won't spare you the whole list, but I'll just say, let's imagine Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, Roy Cooper of North Carolina, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, Tony Edwards of Wisconsin, four states that are really important in this upcoming election. Imagine they all come out and said, Amy Klobuchar can carry this state. And we're not we're not confident Bernie Sanders can. You think that would move people's votes? I mean, like all of these people could come out and do something. They could actually change the dynamics of the now there'd be some risk involved. You'd piss off a whole bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters. But if you if you really think Bernie Sanders is a disaster for the party, act like it. 
<laughs> and this is why the Democratic establishment is weak. Craig, the conclusion is the Democratic establishment is going to lose this fight because they're not willing to have this fight. And lo and behold, Bernie Sanders, this, this at this point looks like he's going to roll all over them all the way onto the uh, nomination. I think if they were going to do this, or at least go to the uh, blow up the Bernie campaign effort, it needed to happen a long time ago. Because, I mean, how many people came out saying anyone but Trump or uh, even pick specific people, but not Trump in 2016? I feel like all it did was validate Trump's argument that the establishment is corrupt and and he's the guy who's standing up for it. And I think on the left, it might have the same effect for Bernie Sanders. It it might be a little bit different if Obama did it. I think the Clintons are kind of yesterday's news, even inside the party. And I really don't know that Pelosi or or Schumer would have that much of an effect. Maybe if you had some some governors in those specific states, like you mentioned, or or some fresh faced people, it's hard to say. But uh, rallying rallying the troops at this point, I'm not sure that that does the, the trick, especially in a crowded field. Well, that's the thing. The idea is that all of these folks, would, you know, if, if all of them came out and endorsed one figure, instead of saying, well, instead of simply saying, well, it shouldn't be Sanders, but instead of saying yeah. it should be Klobuchar or it should be Biden, right, then you at least put, you, know, you get into that one-on-one debate. And we're going to see exactly how hard that ceiling is against Bernie Sanders. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at this point, all of these people are too afraid to even try. Was it Larry Bird who said you miss 100% of all the shots you don't take? Exactly. Might have been Jordan. I can't remember. Pete, but... Pete Buttigieg, it's Indiana. You should, you know, you should know what Larry Bird said. But I know, uh... I know it's before his time. <laughs> That's so sad. That's so sad. But uh, anyway, Democrats, if you're feeling sick, you might want to go see a doctor. And if you're going to go see a doctor, you're going to want one that's feeling good themselves. And I don't just mean not coming down with coronavirus or the flu or whatever is going around at this point, but somebody who actually feels comfortable, literally, in their clothes. Did you know that a nurse walks about five miles per shift or that doctors can work up to 80 hours per week? All on top of devoting themselves to our well-being, they got to go through the paperwork, all the sorts of compliance that they have to do now with Obamacare and all sorts of other regulations. They work hard, and they still have to spend all that time with us, which is what they really want to do, uh, trying to make sure that we are at our peak physical condition. And so these people, sometimes we think of them as practically superhuman, and they need to have clothes that support them in every way possible. And that's where Figs comes in. It's an incredible company that's doing something about this need. They design medical apparel that looks good, feels good, and helps your favorite medical professional perform at their very best, no matter what they have to deal with on a daily basis. Fig scrubs are packed with tons of features and functionality. They created their own fabric that is antimicrobial, anti-wrinkle, moisture-wicking, full of stretch, and ridiculously soft. And it's got pockets, tons of pockets. Some of their styles include more than 10 pockets, which is amazingly useful when you've got a stethoscope, pens, pen light, scissors, tape, alcohol pads, sanitizer, snacks, more snacks. You get the idea. Also, they come in a ton of different colors and styles, from classic V-neck tops to straight leg pants to more fashion-forward collared shirts and jogger pants. Here's the thing that... I learned in in, uh, testing out the stuff from Figs. As I mentioned, I got the activewear jacket. And you mentioned the stuff with the pockets, Jim. There are pockets everywhere. I got pockets where I can put my sunglasses, my keys, my gloves, uh, all sorts of different things. It's a good jacket. You can wear it from 40 degrees all the way up to early to mid-60 degrees. It's very flexible, and you can store a lot of stuff without making yourself look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from, from Ghostbusters. And so sometimes you're figuring out, oh, is that this pocket or that pocket? But you get used to it, and you can 
really use that, and especially, as you mentioned, all the different things that doctors have to have with them as they make their rounds, uh, have uh, hours with their with their patients in clinics and so forth. And the same goes for nurses and for all the techs. Uh, they wear these type of, of uh, outfits all day long, too. And so being comfortable is critical. So if there's a doctor in your house or maybe even a veterinarian or a radiologist or anybody else, and even if you don't work in the medical industry, you've got to know somebody that does, and you should tell them or give them a gift from Figs as well. And right now, listeners of the Three Martini Lunch are getting 15% off for a limited time. To take advantage of that, go to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter the code MARTINI15, MARTINI15, at checkout. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And as we've mentioned, it looks like, at least right now, and obviously things could change, Bernie Sanders is in good shape to end up being the Democratic presidential nominee, which is pretty impressive for a guy that doesn't really identify as a Democrat. Folks are finally starting to pay attention. For a long time, they just wanted to kind of give him a pat on the head and hope that uh, when Bernie fizzled out or he got too old to run, which they thought would probably be the case this year, uh, that uh, maybe they could win over his supporters. But Bernie's still in it. Bernie's winning. And now people are getting a little bit nervous. Last night at 60 Minutes, uh, we were reminded of a number of reasons why we ought to be nervous about Bernie Sanders being the nominee or the next president of the United States. Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, referring to those videos, which are still out there on YouTube and elsewhere, and we've referenced many times, of Sanders back in the 80s and at other times, extolling the uh, finer points of Fidel Castro and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and even the Soviet Union. And here's how that 60 Minutes exchange went. It starts with Anderson Cooper and the videos, and then you get Bernie's response. Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you guys, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you wanna, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. Jim, they had uh, political opponents in prison. They shot a lot of them on the beach. Che Guevara did all that. But, hey, kids learned how to read. <laughs> they, they learned how to read Cuban propaganda. Yeah, basically. A um, couple of thoughts there. First of all, notice he deflects, I'm not too cozy with a Cuban dictator by looking at this North Korean dictator over here and this Russian dictator over here. Which, oh, by the way, at least according to some intelligence sources, the Russian, uh, Russian government wouldn't be all upset about Bernie Sanders. Uh, being elected president. I mean, uh, when you propose a 50% cut in defense spending, yeah, people, you know, Russians might be a fan of that. But okay, fine. <laughs> Let's assume Bernie Sanders does not support the Russian state. For most Democrats, the Russian state has been the biggest threat facing America since election night 2016. The the more interesting thing, I think, Jeff, if people listen to this podcast on a regular basis, and I hope you do, you'd probably say, you know, you know Jim and Greg really don't like uh, China uh, imprisoning the Uyghurs. Uh, they really don't like China's brutal crackdown in Hong Kong. They're not fans of North Korea. They are you know, people go to the national debt. We're worried about a lot of folks aren't. 
Uh, you could go down the list of all the different things that annoy us. The state of Nevada. You know, <laughs> um, they're, they're, you know, if somebody said, well, how about, and I know this only because I'm working on the, the, the next novel, what about the Burmese government's treatment of the Rohingya? And I could be wrong, Greg. I don't know if you and I have ever talked about that on this podcast. Now, if somebody said, you know, do Jim and Greg support the uh, the brutal oppression of the Rohingya? No, we don't. But we, we've never talked about it. And if you wanted to say the Burmese government's treatment of the Rohingya is just not that big a deal to Jim and Greg. I don't want to speak on your behalf, Greg, but you were correct. We have not worried about it that publicly. We have not discussed it. What you talk about says a lot about what you worry about and what you're concerned about and what you prioritize. It says something about Bernie Sanders that every time he has to talk about the Cuban government, he can never just say, they are oppressing people and I oppose this. It's always good. They're oppressing people and oppose, but look at the literacy rates. <laughs> yes, they're putting all gays into jail, but look at the healthcare. You know, it's always this, well, wait a second. There's always some, there's other some good stuff. You know, the message of Bernie Sanders at heart is that Fidel Castro really got a bad rap. And that Fidel Castro and the Cuban regime don't get enough credit for the good stuff they did, and they get far too demonized for the bad stuff that they did, even though we would say, hey, that's some really bad stuff. And by the way, you can flip this around. Does Bernie Sanders ever give Israel credit for its health care programs? Does it ever, I, how about it's, Israel's got really high literacy rates. Does that cancel out anything they've ever written? No, no. So, I mean, when you constantly berate certain countries for, for certain aspects and you hand wave it away for other ones, people get a sense of who you are and what you stand for and what you really worry about. And so... Bernie Sanders can make these pro forma, you know, reading from the note card, yes, yes, Castro is bad type comments. But we can all see through this. We can all know that, look, if a lawmaker really hates Fidel Castro, he goes out and he denounces him. And Fidel, with Bernie Sanders, it's always felt like pulling teeth to get him to say anything of any critic, anything critical about any government that calls itself socialist. And I think that says a great deal about Bernie Sanders' values and what he really thinks is important. That Hitler was terrible, but have you seen the roads over there? Man. <laughs> a fine, fine Autobahn. <laughs> Jeez, unbelievable. Well, it's interesting. We mentioned it uh, in the first Martini Gem that the media has finally caught on to the fact that Sanders is uh, in the driver's seat now for the nomination, and they're finally paying attention to what he's been saying over the years. Here's uh, a little bit of what John Avalon said over on CNN about it. Add to this, Sanders now infamous honeymoon in Moscow near the end of the Cold War, his praise for the Soviet Union's public transportation and youth programs, while somehow never finding time to meet with Nobel Prize-winning Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived in Vermont at the time, it may speak to Sanders' general sympathies at the time. Now, I'm not even getting into Sanders' 1970s advocacy for nationalizing most major industries, or his since-renounced call to abolish the CIA, or his assertion to a Vermont high school student in 1972 that some U.S. action in Vietnam was, quote, almost as bad as what Hitler did. I'm simply pointing out that Sanders' vision of democratic socialism has extended far beyond the Danish-style welfare state, as he likes to claim. And you can bet that's going to be an issue in the general election if his opponents don't make it one in the democratic primary. So I bring that up for two reasons, Jim. First of all, where was this for the past four years, as he even ran back in 2016? Uh, not to mention this year. But secondly, I figured we should play it because if Sanders actually does become the nominee, I assume that's going to get memory hold when he's running against Trump. I, I hope you made a copy of that, Greg, because CNN's going to erase that. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to. Come on. They don't really do that. But it will certainly, that will not be the focus of the coverage, I think. And by the way, I think if you're the Trump campaign, you just take that and run it verbatim. <laughs> just, just run it. And just say, look, John Avalon is no fan of President Trump. And you run it in every 
you know, foreshadowing our next martini. You run it in every community that has a great deal of emigrants from the Soviet Union uh, or China or any other socialist country around the world. Let's move on to our crazy martini. Jim, I had one request, one request of Nevada Democrats on Friday's episode, and that request was to have your vote counting done by the time we had to record on Monday morning. They almost got there, but they didn't get there. Uh, the caucus uh, returns were well below 50% by the time everybody fell asleep on Saturday. Even last night, the last time I checked it, was probably around 9 or 10 o'clock Eastern time, and they had about 70% counted. And uh, as of this morning, they're up at about 96. So they, they almost made my very easy deadline to meet. But they didn't, and uh, basically it's another example of how this caucus process, maybe it's just everywhere, but certainly in Iowa and now Nevada, has been a disaster uh, because you had reports on Saturday of precincts all over the state not having enough Democratic Party volunteers to staff them and and run them properly. Uh, you've got Pete Buttigieg now challenging the way some of the results were calculated. Uh, if you look at the actual raw votes versus uh, this delegate count, uh, I mean, the order's the same, but they don't match up exactly right. And basically, my conclusion here is the only reason Nevada's not getting absolutely pummeled here is because this was a blowout. But once again, the caucus system was an absolute failure. Yeah, look, this at the end of it, the the perception of of getting in the votes quickly very much depends on whether it's a competitive race. Nevada Democrats, as much, you know, whatever they think of Bernie Sanders, they should be thanking the lucky star that he ran away with this because when he was at forty some percent, and the next closest guy, I think Biden, it was Biden at twenty percent or so. Yes, nobody's worried. About, okay, well, Bernie Sanders won, and it, by the way, I, I believe it looks like everybody else is below fifteen percent. So. Bernie gets most of the delegates. There's a you know another chunk of you know the rest go to Biden, and everybody else gets shut out. Which, by the way, raises the question of whether, looking back, would Democrats have kept that 15% threshold in place? I, what I'm sure they wanted. Well, we don't want lots of stragglers hanging around with two or three percent or something like that. It didn't work. <laughs> if the goal was to narrow the field, and what they ended up doing was create a situation for if you're Amy Klobuchar or or you know any of these folks who are trying to come from behind, you're not a front runner. Think about it. If you get 14%, you get nothing. If you get 16%, you've had a respectable showing and you're getting, you're going home with delegates. One of the things that has been fascinating about this, as we were discussing this in the first martini, as I said, you know, if everybody united behind one Bernie Sanders alternative, one of the things that's really tough is that Buttigieg is the only guy who can make the argument that he's beaten Sanders, except he only did it technically on delegates in Iowa. Bernie Sanders knocked everybody around in uh, in New Hampshire, but at least in New Hampshire, but Buttigieg can say, well, at least I was second there. Klobuchar can hold her head high based on that one, that she had a very respectable third place. She got delegates out of it, but she did nothing in Nevada. And I don't think she's going to do that much. It doesn't look like she's going to do much in South Carolina. And then you're on to Super Tuesday, and it's just hard to believe that somebody who's running fifth, sixth place is going to suddenly rocket up to the top and, you know, in too many places other than her home state of Minnesota. Biden, you know, if, if he's the strongest alternative because he got delegates here, yeah, he could win South Carolina, although it's not looking too great in some of these most recent polls. He's got, a, you know, he theoretically has the national structure around him, but he's just had three straight bitter disappointments. The, you know, the, the trend is not his friend, you know. So then, you know, you have Buttigieg who peaked and then flopped. You had Klobuchar who didn't do anything. There, there's no, and then there's Bloomberg who hasn't competitive in any of these things. Now he's got the money and he's going to be having, you know, he's going to be spending a ton in all these states. So maybe on Super Tuesday, he surprises everybody. 
But I mean, they, you know, they need to unite yesterday and nobody sees any reason to leave between now and uh, and that. And the irony is, is that like, if it, you know, if any one of them had come close in Nevada, then the lack of resolve results up until this morning might have actually worked to the favor of, you know, any, let's say Biden had been closer, right? Then Biden would be in the situation, oh, he almost won Nevada. Or, oh, we don't know if Biden won Nevada. But because it was such a blowout by Sanders, it didn't really matter. So they are in such a bad spot right now. Greg, pass the popcorn. <laughs> I'm eating a lot of popcorn lately. It's just fun to watch uh, the expectations and the spin in this situation. Because, as you mentioned, only two people are really going to get delegates out of Nevada. And uh, it's just fun to watch Joe Biden, who finished, what was it, fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, get trounced by 26 points in Nevada. But since he finished second, he's like, I'm back, baby. And uh, we'll see what happens in South Carolina. If he wins there and does well in some of these uh, other states with uh, pretty high minority populations on Super Tuesday, he might have a better argument to be the non-Bernie candidate. But uh, we've still got a ways to go for that to be the case. Yeah. By the way, the other thing is front-loading the primaries has backfired enormously. Yes. Like you think, you know, okay, oh, you know, South Carolina, they've got three days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Right. Right? There's just no time to put anything together. Even if you get huge momentum, you don't have much time for it to permeate through the rest of the electorate. So, oh, they messed, they, they, you know, they planned it perfectly to, to hurt themselves. <laughs> <laughs> just be careful of any internet videos you watch because you're going to get a Bloomberg ad. They're, all, they're everywhere, literally everywhere. But uh, we'll see if it does any good. He still is at zero delegates since he's not been on the ballot anywhere and won't be this week either. But, uh, that all changes on Super Tuesday. So, Jim, could be a fun week. We'll see. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please leave us a kind review and a five-star review if you don't mind. Uh, also, don't forget that those uh, home devices, Alexa, Google Home, all you have to do is say, play Three Martini Lunch Podcast, and it'll play it for you. We're everywhere, but in a good way. See you tomorrow on the Three Martini Lunch.